Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us, peace be unto all. Friends, the subject for today's service is Essentials for Spiritual Life. According to Vedanta, the ultimate reality is spiritual. In fact, what exists is that spiritual reality called Brahman in Vedanta. So that one <coughs> existence absolute alone exists, but it appears to us as this manifest universe, as different living beings, because of what is called Maya. Maya is also called ignorance. Ignorance at the individual level. Because I am ignorant, I see this world of multiplicity. Ignorant of what? I am ignorant of the fact that I am the spirit. I am not the body and not the mind. I am not the senses. I am not this little individual. But I am the spirit. This is the truth that our Upanishads have been teaching. <coughs> but I am ignorant of this truth. And I think I am this body. I am this mind. I am this limited individual. So what exists is that one spiritual essence behind this body and mind and behind the universe we perceive, we perceive outside. And the goal of life, says Vedanta, is to realize this one existence absolute. Realize that we are the spirit. Realize that that spirit alone is real and this universe of multiplicity is relatively unreal. Now our subject is essentials for spiritual life. Before we discuss the essentials, it will be good to know what is meant by spiritual life. We just now saw that the spirit, the one existence, self-effulgent, self-existent is the essence of life. It's behind this human body, it's behind this human mind. So a spiritual seeker considers the spirit to be fundamental, the spirit to be the fundamental reality. Though he has not realized it, he pins his uh, faith on the teachings of the scriptures, on the teachings of realized souls. So he considers spirit to be fundamental. And matter, including his own mind and body, as accretions, 
as appearances on this basic spirit. In contrast to this, a person who is attached to the world, who is not aware of any higher spiritual ideal to strive for, will look upon this body as fundamental, the senses as sacrosanct. Whatever is perceivable by the senses alone is real. And for such people there is no use for God. And if such people try to have some idea about God, about consciousness, they'll try to interpret it in terms of matter, in terms of body, in terms of the brain, in terms of glands, and say that our thoughts are some kind of secretion by the brain. Consciousness is also some kind of a secretion by the brain. These are all views of materialists who hold matter, the body, to be fundamental, and whatever is perceivable by our five senses to be fundamental, and try to explain whatever is not perceivable in terms of what is perceivable. But a spiritual seeker holds the spirit to be fundamental. Though the spirit does not become real to him or her, he holds that to be fundamental and tries to remind himself or herself that he is that, she is that. That we are the body, that we are the mind, no one needs to tell us. We know it. That's the default condition. That we are the spirit. We are not this body, we are not the mind. We are an entity different from both these. We need the scriptures to tell us this. Because this truth is not perceivable by the senses, by the ears, by the skin, by the eyes, by the tongue, by the nose. Because this is a sense transcendent truth. So we need to have fundamentally what is called Shraddha. <coughs> Shraddha means a firm conviction, says Sri Shankaracharya, a firm conviction that the teachings of the scriptures and of realized souls of our spiritual teacher are true. That fire is hot, ice is cold, we don't need the Upanishads to come and tell us. These are all sense perceivable truths, facts of life. Fire is hot, we can touch and feel and, and see for ourselves, feel for ourselves. Ice is cold, same thing. But that we are the spirit, we need the Upanishads. We need our scriptures to tell us this. And we can know it only by our, by our own personal experience. <coughs> Swami Vivekananda says, What does it matter to me if Buddha has realized the truth, if Christ has realized the truth? What matters to me is, I must realize the truth. And Swami Vivekananda says, yes, it is possible. Every one of us can aspire to realize this truth. Man, woman, this country or that country. Without any distinction whatsoever, every one of us can aspire for this realization that we are the spirit. So spiritual life consists in considering spirit as fundamental and matter as secondary. Though this world of <coughs> multiplicity perceivable by our senses is very strong, is probably the only reality. If we are spiritual seekers, we seek that behind this multiplicity. So a spiritual seeker considers the spirit to be fundamental. He believes himself or herself to be the spirit, basing his faith on the teachings of the scriptures and of the guru. 
Swami Vivekananda says, we are all potentially divine. Each soul is potentially divine. Potentially divine. Potentially, what does it mean? We are all divine, but we are not aware of it. There is a potentiality of its manifestation. Anything that is not manifest is potential in us. In science, you have potential energy, kinetic energy. Energy that is yet to manifest is potential energy. Energy in action is kinetic energy. So potential divinity is, we are divine, but that divinity is not fully manifest. It is manifest in different degrees in different people. And the goal of life, says Swami Vivekananda, and the goal of religion is to help us manifest this potential divinity. It should find expression in our thoughts, in our actions. So we, we begin to interact with this world, not with the premise that we are the body, but that we are the spirit. That we are superior to the body, we are superior to the senses, we are superior to the mind. We think and act accordingly. And Swami Vivekananda defined religion as the manifestation of the divinity already in man. We are all divine. This has to manifest. Religion has to help us do this. If religion helps us in this manifestation, then it is worth its name. In other words, if we are religious, we are supposed to gradually be able to unfold this divinity which is latent in us. Swami Vivekananda makes this more clear. What is meant by this manifestation of this potential divinity? He says, <coughs> Religion is the idea that transforms a brute into a man and a man into a god. If we are truly religious, it should help us undergo this transformation from a brute to a man to a god animal nature to human nature to divine nature. These are all intertwined in our personality. A person who is devoted to the world, to whom the world of senses, the sense objects alone are real, in him only the animal nature is manifest. But human nature, more and more higher aspects of our being, gradual manifestation of selflessness, pursuit of higher pleasure, than what comes from the organic level, which is what animals are after. They are after only that. So more and more of human nature means more and more of disciplining the mind, more and more of disciplining the senses, more and more of exercising the power of discrimination. I have a goal before me, and I try to judge my thoughts and actions in conformity with that goal. Will my thought, will my action be helpful in my realizing the ideal or will it deflect me from the ideal? This is discrimination. That means I try to distance myself from my thought and from the course of action I'm going to take and I choose to do what is beneficial to me in realizing the ideal and I resolutely, consciously discard anything that doesn't help us in this realization. This is the power of discrimination. To the extent this power of discrimination is manifest in an individual, 
human life becomes meaningful. According to scriptures, there are four qualities common to human beings and animals. First is eating food. That's common to human beings and animals. Next is sleep. Third is fear. This is also common to human beings and animals. Fourth, the urge to procreate, sexual urge. So these are four qualities common to human beings and animals. Then what differentiates human beings from animals? Asks the scripture, Hitopadesha. It is dharma which differentiates human beings from animals. Dharma again is a very important word in Sanskrit. It has several shades of meaning, as Shraddha has, as Buddhi has. Dharma means morality. Dharma means righteousness. Dharma means religion, Hindu Dharma. <coughs> so Dharma has several shades of meaning. So when we consider the meaning morality or righteousness, by implication, Dharma refers to discrimination. The power of discrimination between what is right and what is wrong. What is beneficial and what is merely pleasant? What will help me realize the ideal and what will uh, deflect me from the ideal? This is discrimination. This discrimination alone differentiates a human being from animals. So in a human being, when desires in the mind alone dictate the thoughts and actions, this human being remains enslaved by his mind, by, by his senses, by the desires in his mind. Doesn't do anything, doesn't exert himself against the mind and the senses and choose to do something different. When a human being is like this, he is hardly different from animals. <laughs> he is just a social animal, as the definition goes. He has the power of speech. Animals too have the power of speech, intelligible among themselves. So this power of discrimination differentiates human beings from animals. And only human beings can strive for a spiritual ideal. So spiritual life consists in holding the spirit to be fundamental. I am that spirit. I am an entity different from the body, different from the mind. And that implies alertness, alertness with respect to the mind, with respect to the body, with respect to the senses. And let's keep in mind this definition of Swami Vivekananda's. Religion is the idea that transforms a brute into a man and a man into a god. We can be Christians, we can be Buddhists, we can be Muslims, Hindus. Does our practice of religion help us undergo transformation from animal nature to human nature to divine nature? then we are religious, no matter whatever our label is. Otherwise, we follow all the rituals, all the superficial aspects of religion, yet don't undergo this character transformation. Religion is far away from us. We are only dabbling in the cursory aspects of religion. When we study Swami Vivekananda, we understand what is not religion, what is religion. This clarity <coughs> is something unique to Swami Vivekananda's teachings. You don't get this clarity. You ask someone, 
who has not studied Swami Vivekananda, what is religion? You will get any number of definitions as the number of people you are posing this question to. But Swami Vivekananda says, character transformation. So, spiritual life consists in looking upon God-realization or self-realization or realization that we are the spirit as the goal of life and trying to think and act based on this understanding. Now before we discuss spiritual life proper, we need to uh, understand one point that is a very strong foundation in moral life is fundamental to spiritual life. Moral life means strengthening the good side of our character. We will be good in spite of ourselves. We cannot do anything bad even if we wanted, it, wanted to do. So that is moral life, strengthening the good side of our character. And very briefly, this uh, we can see what this means. Swami Vivekananda teaches in the very first lecture on Karma Yoga. Karma in its effect on character. That every action of ours, every thought of ours, thoughts are also considered actions. Every action of ours, called karma, leaves an impression in the mind. Thought or action leaves an impression in the mind. And this impression keeps getting deepened with every repetition of that particular act. So we have done so many actions, we have thought so many thoughts, and we have impressions corresponding to them. And those impressions getting strengthened with each repetition. And we have done all this in this life. And we have done all this in any number of lives before. So all this, all these impressions are in our mind. Good impressions, bad impressions. Once again, good and bad being relative terms. Now Swami Vivekananda teaches that if we take a sum total of these impressions, sum total, you give a positive sign to good impressions, a negative sign to bad impressions, take an algebraic sum of these impressions, and if the net sum is positive, we are supposed to have good character. If the net sum is negative, we are supposed to have bad character. So the sum total of our impressions determines our character. If good impressions prevail, I have good character. If bad impressions prevail, I have bad character. So the challenge before a spiritual seeker is to strengthen his good impressions. That is the only way to become free from the hold of bad impressions. <coughs> if my bad impressions prevail, if I have bad character, I do bad things, I think bad things in spite of myself. I know it is bad to think bad, I know it is bad to act bad, yet I continue to do it because I am under the control of my impressions. We have that famous example of Duryodhana, the villain in the Mahabharata. You have a beautiful verse put into his mouth. Janami dharmam nachame pravrittihi. Janam yadharmam nachame nivrittihi. That is the half verse. That is what is required for our consideration here. 
Duryodhana we know, those who have studied the Mahabharata know that he was an embodiment of evil, embodiment of vice. Evil thoughts, evil actions. So he says, according to this verse put into his mouth, I know what is right, what is righteousness, but I don't have the inclination to practice it. I know what is wrong, but I don't have, I'm not able to desist from it. I know what is wrong, yet I continue to do wrong. I know what is right, I am not able to practice it. That was Duryodhana's predicament because in him bad impressions prevailed. Though he knew what was right, what was wrong, he couldn't practice what is right, he couldn't desist from what was wrong. So, what is required is a firm foundation in moral life. And moral life consists in strengthening the good side of our character. And this is imperative for a spiritual seeker. Incidentally, being firmly grounded in moral life is a high ideal, high enough for the majority of people. Why should I be spiritual? All right, if they are just moral, that is good enough. That's the ideal, that's the only ideal many people can strive for. But if we strive for the spirit, then the right time should come. Sri Ramakrishna says, A child asked its mother before going to sleep, Mother, please wake me up when I have the call of nature. <coughs> the mother said, My child, I don't need to wake you up. The very call, the call of nature will wake you up itself. So when the right time comes, when there is aspiration in the mind, when we see that this world is not a place from, which, from where to get unmixed, pleasure, then discrimination dawns on us. Then we begin to seek something higher, something superior to what the world offers us, and then begins spiritual life. But for spiritual life to begin, I need to strengthen my moral life. And strengthening this moral life, as we saw, involves strengthening our good impressions. So this is a point we try to keep in mind. Moral life is fundamental to spiritual life, but moral life is not the goal of life. For many people, moral life alone, strengthening moral life alone is possible. They may not see the need for spiritual life, but for a spiritual seeker, a firm grounding in moral life is indispensable. Now we'll see certain essentials. We try to establish ourselves in moral life, we said. So for a spiritual seeker to be established in moral life, there are certain preparatory disciplines prescribed by Patanjali in his Yoga Sutras. The first two sets of disciplines called Yama and Niyama. We'll consider them as essentials for moral life and for spiritual life. There are more essentials, we'll consider them also, but this helps us have a firm grounding in moral life. Yama and Niyama. These are the first two limbs of the eight-limbed yoga of Patanjali's. Yoga, by yoga is understood mostly physical postures. People do asanas, and by, by those asanas, they get the suppleness of body and maybe some health benefits. But yoga, 
Yoga is an important word. Asana is only a part, only one of the eight limbs of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And it comes third after Yama and Niyama. Yama and Niyama are ethical disciplines. After that comes Asana. After that comes Pranayama, breath control. There is the fourth. Fifth is Pratyahara, gathering in a dispersed mind. Then comes Dharana, concentration. Then comes Dhyana, meditation. Then comes Samadhi, total absorption in that reality. So these are the eight limbs of Patanjali's yoga. And Asana comes after being perfected in these two ethical, these two sets of ethical disciplines, Yama and Niyama. So asanas, as far as they go, they're all right. But to think of yoga synonymous with asanas will be grossly, uh, will be, will be uh, having, will, will amount to having a partial understanding of what yoga is. So we'll consider these disciplines. Under Yama, Patanjali teaches the first discipline is non-violence. We have a teaching in Sanskrit, Ahimsa Paramo Dharma. Nonviolence is the supreme virtue. Nonviolence in thought, word, and deed. Nonviolence is a subject by itself, Ahimsa. First and foremost, nonviolence cannot be a universal virtue. When we study Swami Vivekananda, we understand this. Nonviolence is a virtue based on strength, not on weakness. I am not able to strike and I justify. I try to make a virtue of my weakness by saying that I am practicing Ahimsa. Swami Vivekananda says, if you are practicing Ahimsa, it's a virtue of strength. If you have the capacity to strike and don't, then you are practicing Ahimsa. If you don't have the capacity to strike, and make a virtue of it by saying that you are practicing non-violence, you continue to be in a state of tamas, inertia, the lowermost rung of the ladder of spiritual evolution. So non-violence is a virtue of strength. We accumulate strength, and non-violence is not weakness and justifying weakness by calling it high-sounding name, ahimsa. So a spiritual seeker doesn't hurt any, anyone by thought, word, or deed. He doesn't harm anyone. But he remembers that it's a virtue of strength. Next is truthfulness. Sri Ramakrishna says, He who holds fast to truth lies in the lap of God, as it were. And he says, Truthfulness is the tapasya, is the austerity for this age. We cannot afford to be in gray areas of truth and still hope to be spiritual seekers. Being truthful involves sacrifice. But a spiritual seeker doesn't mind paying any price for that realization. And about truthfulness we have. <coughs> we have a teaching in Sanskrit. Satyam bruyat, speak the truth. Priyam bruyat, speak unpleasant, speak pleasant truths. Nabruyat satyam apriyam. Don't speak an unpleasant truth. First is speak the truth. Second is speak what is pleasant. That means pleasant truth. Third, don't speak an unpleasant truth. When we interact with people, we may, we may get to know things. 
even if we don't seek information which is what gossip mongers do sometimes information could come to us passively it's not imperative on our part to disseminate it for the benefit of the world immediately a spiritual seeker tries to assimilate things and he doesn't believe in disseminating all this <coughs> information about people so speak what is pleasant don't speak an unpleasant truth nabruya satyam apriyam then comes another <coughs> aspect of truth priyanch nanrutam bruyat just to make it pleasant to the hearer don't speak an untrue don't speak an untruth once again speak what is true so speak what is true speak the truth next speak only pleasant truths third don't speak an unpleasant truth fourth don't speak an untruth just to make it pleasant to the hearer yesha dharma sanatana this is what is called eternal religion so truthfulness is not very easy it is easy provided we are simple if there are no crookedness inside being truthful is easy and being truthful is less strain our on our memory because one untruth to to save this untruth we need to keep on telling lies after lies which means we need to keep in mind all this so speaking truth has all these several um dimensions to it next is non stealing asteya that means not not stealing from others not stealing others possessions very very evident meaning of it non stealing also includes not stealing others time not stealing others resources because some people have have the knack of imposing themselves on others intruding themselves into others affairs intruding into others time but conscientious people spiritual seekers try not to steal anything from others so that is about non stealing next is continence brahmacharya this about conservation of energy we have precious energy in the body in the mind as spiritual seekers we need to practice spiritual disciplines regularly steadfastly that needs energy energy again <coughs> by definition the definition of energy in sciences the capacity to do work energy is the capacity to do work so if you have to have the capacity to do work do spiritual practice we need to conserve our energy you have the law of conservation of energy in physics energy can neither be created nor can it be destroyed it can only be transformed from one form to another something comparable you have at the mental level also we have energy in the mind it can go either in the higher channel or in the lower channel if our mental energy is led to is uh, is is led to dissipate itself in lower channels there will be hardly any left for its manifestation in higher channels so that is what is brahmacharya self control controlling our energies not dissipating them through lower channels and next is not being greedy aparigraha not being greedy because there are two things want 
and need. As the saying goes, God always gives us what we need, not always what we want. So our want can be, wants can be infinite based on our greed, but our needs could be minimum. So greed, a person does not, a spiritual seeker tries to curb his greed. And this greed, greed means more and more eagerness for possession. And this greed is so bad that when it is coupled with the desire and anger, karma and krodha, these three, desire, anger and greed, form a triple gateway to hell, teaches Sri Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. Desire, anger and greed form a triple gateway to hell right here when we are living. <coughs> Not in the afterlife, in the afterlife for sure, but even here we make our own lives hell, we make others' lives also hell when we succumb to these three, desire, anger and greed. They are triple gateways to hell. Therefore, one ought to stay away from these, says Sri Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. Next we come to Niyama, the second set of uh, disciplines. First is purity. Purity, external purity and internal purity. External purity doesn't need much of an elaboration. External purity, purity at the physical level, we wash ourselves regularly, keep ourselves clean. More important is purity at the inner level, purity of mind. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, the Bible, one of the Beatitudes. <coughs> so pure in mind, pure in heart, both of which are the same. What is meant by pure in mind? What is meant by pure in heart? A spiritual seeker has a very clear understanding about this. Purity means more and more of God in the mind. The Bhagavad Gita teaches that there is more that there is nothing more purifying than knowledge. Nahi jnanena sadrsham pavitram iha vidyate. There is nothing more purifying than knowledge with a capital K, self-knowledge. Knowledge in which the knower, the known, and the process of knowing, this threefold distinction, become one. Knowledge in which the knower of Brahman becomes one with Brahman. <coughs> that knowledge is power, that knowledge is purity. So mental purity involves more and more manifestation of this knowledge. The closer we are to the self, or the closer we are to God, the closer we grow in devotion to God, the purer the mind becomes. <coughs> the purer we feel in body, the purer we feel in mind. And this requires alertness. We can be pure in body, we can be pure in mind only when we cultivate this alertness, when we exercise the power of discrimination all the time, when we are conscious about what we take in through the senses through the ears, through the skin, the eyes, the tongue and the nose. More important what we take in through the mind. We read a book, we take in ideas through the mind. And a spiritual seeker cannot afford to take in anything and everything through his five senses and the mind.
He cannot afford to read anything and everything. There, there is such a huge explosion of knowledge. Books, internet. A spiritual seeker tries to judiciously use his time, her time. All these resources are good. Let's go to the internet, let's get what we want. But it's, such, it's kind of a maze. You go for something and you go here, go there. Let's assume that all these sites are good sites, wholesome sites. We are not going to bad sites. But you go to three or four sites, you, you forget what you started with. It happens to every one of us. So all these are good resources. We just, a spiritual seeker, consciously does what he, what he wants. So, <coughs> we need to be alert. We need to be alert with respect to the mind, with respect to the body. Alertness and, the keen sense, and a keen sense of observation for purity. What we take in through the body, what we take in through the senses, what we take in through the mind are important for purity of mind. In the Chandogya Upanishad we have this teaching. Ahara Shuddhav Sattva Shuddhihi when our food is pure, our mind becomes pure. Sri Shankara says, food, indicates not only physical food. Physical food is important. We need to see that it is free of impurities of any kind. Sri Ramanuja mentions three kinds of impurities and we need to stay clear of these impurities. Because the finest part of the assimilated food goes to build the mind. So the purer the food, the purer becomes the mind. But Shankara says, Ahara, which means food, means what we take in, not only through the mouth, but through all the senses, through the mind. If what we take in through the senses and the mind is pure, the mind becomes pure. So through the five senses, through the ears, skin, eyes, tongue, and the nose, and the mind, what we take in, if that is pure, that will go to build a pure mind. And purity, we saw, purity means more of knowledge of God, more of proximity to God, by way of more of devotion, the purer the mind is. So for purity of mind, we try to repeat God's name consciously with alertness. The next quality is contentment. This contentment, a spiritual seeker, we saw already that he, he is free from greed. He is contented. What is meant by contented? Does contentment mean a state of inertness, a state of tamas? He doesn't strive for anything higher. He strives. When we are in the world, when we are householders, we strive for money. We strive for money by rightful means. That is right. But contentment can go with this. Contentment is compatible with a life of striving. Of course, we need to stay clear of greed. Contentment means consists in striving for well-being in life and striving for dependence on God. When we depend on God, we do our best we keep striving for whatever we strive for in life and leave the results to God. That is contentment. 
I have done my best, I have to do my best, so I do my best and leave the results to God so that I am not unduly anxious about the future. That is important for a spiritual seeker, a mind that is always traveling to the future and is anxious, worried, afraid in the process cannot help us in our spiritual pursuit. And we need enthusiasm and perseverance for our spiritual pursuit. So contentment involves doing our best and leaving the results to God. It's not at the state of tamas. Contentment means not a sense of uh, apathy. Not a, not, it doesn't imply lack of self-effort. We do our best. We exert ourselves but are not worried about the results of our action. I am a child of God. I will stick to the right path. I will try to follow spiritual teachings and God will protect me under all circumstances. That is what is meant by contentment. Faith in the protecting power of God. I will do my best and God does always the right thing for me and I have God's protection no matter what. That is contentment. Next is austerity. Austerity is tapas. Austerity again, that's a subject by itself. But by austerity is meant control of the mind and the senses and directing, directing them on the truth within. Austerity obviously does not mean just a modification of the flesh. Mortification of the flesh just for the sake of mortification doesn't lead us anywhere. Buddha found it out for six long years. It didn't lead him anywhere. Mortification of the, flood, uh, of the flesh and not giving it even minimum nutrition didn't lead him anywhere. So tapas is not just mortification of the flesh. As I said, it's a subject by itself. The Bhagavad Gita mentions three kinds of tapas. Tapas at the physical level and tapas at the level of speech and tapas at the level of the mind. We can briefly see these things. We, are not, we don't have time to dwell on each one of these aspects of tapas. But we can at least see what these different aspects of austerity are. But before that we keep in mind, the Mahabharata says tapas means one-pointedness of the senses and the mind on the truth within. Our senses and the mind can be one-pointed on something outside, something that interests us. We go to a sports match and then we root for our team. Our mind is, our mind and the senses, the, the sense I, they are all focused. The mind and the sense are focused on the event outside. That is not tapas. Tapas is making the mind and the senses one-pointed and directing them within on the truth. So any kind of activity which goes by the name of tapas has to help me in directing the senses and the mind inward. So according to the Bhagavad Gita, tapas at the physical level involves worship of the gods, Worship of the, of the twice-born, worship of teachers, worship of the wise, and then cleanliness, 
uprightness continence and non-violence these are dimensions of austerity at the physical level then at the level of speech <coughs> words that do not give offense to others anudvegakaram vakyam udvega we say something that incites others that agitates others that creates some kind of a perturbation perturbation in others the bhagavad gita <coughs> mentions in the 12th chapter characteristics of a devotee who is dear to god there <coughs> he mentions this quality yasman no dvijate loko lokan no dvijate chayah a person who doesn't disturb others a person who doesn't who is not a cause of agitation or disturbance in others and who is not disturbed by others who is not agitated by others such a devotee is dear to me that is one of the qualifications so here of speech a spiritual seeker tries not to say anything to hurt others anything that can agitate others next at the level of speech words that are truthful pleasant pleasant and beneficial we already saw different aspects of truth speak what is true speak the pleasant truth don't speak an unpleasant truth don't speak an untruth just to make it pleasant to the hearer these are different aspects of truth and next comes under austerity of speech regular study of scriptures regular study of scriptures for a spiritual seeker is not to grow in scholarship because scholars are not wanting who have mastery over the scriptures sri ramakrishna used to seek seek out scholars of repute in his days pandit shashadhar yeshu chandra vidyasagar and he would visit them in calcutta he because he lived in a suburb of calcutta called dakshineshwar but he would go and visit them but he would make sure before he went that that scholar was endowed with devotion and discrimination and not just mere dry scholarship dry scholarship anyone can have scholarship that does not change our character there are many such people <coughs> masters of philosophy people heads of departments of philosophy 9 to 5 that's what they do 5 to 9 what they do is up to them there is no lack of such people but scriptural study for a spiritual seeker is not for scholarship if we if we gain scholarship good enough holy mother says a sanyasin who has scriptural scholarship also is like an elephant's tusk adorned with gold so scholarship as we study if we grow in scholarship right but scholarship is not the goal of life and we need to stay we need to stay clear of the evils of scholarship pride and so on so why should a why should a spiritual seeker study scriptures study spiritual teachings to keep the mind oriented toward the spiritual goal other otherwise the mind keeps on gathering dirt day in and day out by our everyday activities 
to orient this mind toward the spiritual goal that's a prerequisite for us to practice spiritual disciplines in a steadfast way so we read spiritual teachings we need the teachings of the scriptures to make us understand that ultimately god alone is real and this world unreal this world is real for for all our practical purposes right but as spiritual seekers we hold the spirit to be fundamental and matter to be secondary shri ramakrishna gives this teaching you when you study the gospel of shri ramakrishna you find in every other page of the gospel shri ramakrishna's teachings on prayer oh god i lack devotion i lack scholarship i lack this virtue i lack that virtue i throw him out i throw myself at your feet please grant me devotion please grant me love for love for you please grant me love for the divine name so you have you have teachings on prayer in every other page of the gospel but when we study the gospel carefully that we find that along with his teachings on prayer shri ramakrishna always stressed discrimination he says along with prayer one must discriminate discriminate that god alone is real and this world this only has only a momentary existence and did shri ramakrishna tell this only to his sannyasin disciples oh these are all high flown things not for me no shri ramakrishna told this to household disciples who came to him on holidays and sundays as m did he told this to anyone who had spiritual aspiration so household disciples who came to shri ramakrishna they had spiritual aspiration and shri ramakrishna said yes you can grow in devotion you can grow in god consciousness but there are certain conditions to be fulfilled so <clears throat> scriptural scholarship helps us orient our mind toward the ideal shri ramakrishna says we need to practice this we need to reflect on this fact god alone is real and this world illusory ultimately and he says this you find this in the gospel one should practice this discrimination one should reflect on the evanescence of the world one should reflect on the truth that god alone is the substance in this world and everything else is insubstantial he says god alone is vastu everything else is avastu and he says we should especially reflect on this fact when we are about to be overcome by lust or anger when we are about to be overcome by lust or anger then we reflect on the evanescence of the world and the permanence of god once again sri ramakrishna gave these teachings to his household disciples so let's not go back home with the idea that these are all high flown things meant vedantic teachings are meant only for uh, only only for some elite few not of consequence to me if i am not able to practice that is a different matter but swami vivekananda would say let's not lower the ideal we'll try we have to strive to measure up to the ideal not lower the ideal there is a gap between the ideal and what we are and we try to bridge the gap by spiritual practice by prayer so recitation of the scriptures aspect of uh, austerity at the speech level it 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 helps us keep the mind on a higher plane it helps us orient the mind toward the spiritual ideal next austerity of the mind 
First is being serene. Manav prasadaha, serenity of mind. Next is gentleness. The next, silence. Silence is maunam. Maunam, that is the original word in the Gita. Silence. Silence does not just mean keeping our mouth shut and carrying on all conversation with signs of our hand as some people try to just observe silence. That doesn't help us. Much better it would be for them to speak out what they have in mind. That silence should be a spiritual virtue. That means a spiritual seeker does not unnecessarily spend, waste his words. That is what is silence. Swami Turiyanandaji, Sri Ramakrishna's monastic disciple, gives this important teaching. When we are silent, merely being silent alone is not of much consequence unless we keep a watch on the mind. When we are silent, we are no one, no one to talk to, but there are so many thoughts going on in the mind. Swami Turiyanandaji says, thinking amounts to talking to ourselves. It is much better to repeat God's name when we are alone. We can be alone, but we, are thinking of, we, can, be, we can be thinking of everything under the sun. We live all those things. So, all, those, all, the, all the thinking amounts to conversing with ourselves. It is much better to repeat God's name when we are alone. Next, austerity at the mental level is self-control. Next is purity of heart. <coughs> the next discipline in Niyama, because we were on the subject of austerity and we saw different aspects of austerity as described in the Bhagavad Gita. So the next discipline under Niyama is study of scripture, which we have already covered. And the next is surrendering ourselves to God. A spiritual seeker does what needs to be done. There is no substitute for self-effort, but he offers his self-effort and offers the fruits of his spiritual practice to God. So he cultivates self-surrender, not being unmindful at the same time of self-effort. Total self-surrender, absolute surrender, depending on God and letting God act not, I'm, I'm not doing anything, just letting God act. That's a very, very high state. It's a very advanced state of spiritual progress. Until then, we need to do what is expected of us and depend on God. We saw this firm foundation in moral life is a prerequisite to spiritual life. Swami Vivekananda defines morality as one with spiritual life. We have books on ethics. Ethics is a subject by itself. We have books, we have thinkers who have given their thoughts. Why should we be ethical? Why should we be moral? Swami Vivekananda gives us the true sanction for morality. Why should we be moral? Someone may say it's because my, scriptures, my, my scripture asks me to do it. I have to be moral because my scripture says so. But again, my understanding of my scripture decides my standard of morality. There are people who swear in the name of the scriptures and still engage in destructive activities because they think that's what their scriptures teach them. And by doing so, doing these destructive activities, they are 
assured of heavenly felicity in the afterlife. So leaving our morality to the scriptures is not a very safe thing all the time. Because someone tells me this, someone, someone else told me this. So these are all not infallible. Swami Vivekananda says the true sanction for morality is that we are the spirit. And if we are spiritual seekers, if we are immoral, we are forging a link to the chain that binds us to the world. If we are immoral, it makes to that much extent manifestation of our spiritual nature more difficult. And Swami Vivekananda says, <coughs> it's difficult to judge by your actions themselves what is moral, what is immoral. Because conditions differ. Our cultural background differs. Our religion differs. So what is dictated to by our scriptures, our teachings are different. So the same action could be considered by one teaching moral, by another teaching immoral. Swami Vivekananda gives an example. Suppose you give a piece of beef to a Hindu who has not eaten meat, who has not eaten, especially even if he eats meat. A traditional Hindu is supposed to be staying off beef. So he is hungry, you are offering him a piece of uh, beef. That is not moral from his point of view. On the other hand, a person is used to eating beef and he is hungry. If you are not offering him beef, you are immoral. So the action by itself cannot help us determine whether it is moral or immoral. Swami Vivekananda says, anything that makes you unselfish is moral. Anything that makes you selfish is immoral. And he says elsewhere, anything that takes you Godward is moral. Anything that takes you toward the world, anything that binds you to the world is immoral. And he says elsewhere, there are two things, God and the world. Everything that is selfish can be classified under the world. Unselfishness is God himself. So let's put all these teachings together. Anything that makes you unselfish is moral, says Swami Vivekananda. And he says, unselfishness is God himself. That means anything that helps us in the manifestation of our divine nature. Anything that takes us Godward is moral. Anything that binds us to the world more and more is immoral. Swami Vivekananda makes it more explicit in some other place when he speaks of morality. He says, what is meant by morality? Making the subject strong by attuning it to the absolute so that finite nature ceases to have control over us. I don't think we can get this definition from any book on ethics. Making the subject strong <coughs> by attuning it to the absolute. What is meant by subject here? We are not talking about someone, we are not talking about a third person, we are not talking about dry Vedanta. Subject means I am. I am the subject. Every one of you, you are the subject. So making the subject, the true I, making me strong by attuning myself to the infinite so that finite nature ceases to have control over us. Finite nature means not only the perceivable universe outside, but everything from my mind downward, my mind, my senses, my body, my nature, my internal nature is 
more important making the subject strong by attuning it to the absolute so that finite nature beginning from my mind ceases to have control over us duryodhana could not do what is right because his mind had control over him the evil mind so here morality means attuning myself to the infinite the god within the spirit within so that finite nature my mind senses body and events outside cease to have control over me so that is so that shows how moral life and spiritual life are interrelated swami brahmananda another of shri ramakrishna's prime disciples says it is not possible to be established in morality unless you believe in god we'll consider a couple of more essentials for spiritual life a very important essential is aspiration you find this occurring very frequently in the pages of the gospel of shri ramakrishna yearning for god longing for god aspiration in bengali and in sanskrit we call it vyakulata vyakulata intense aspiration for the truth earnestness shri ramakrishna says we need only two things to know the truth to realize god one is sincerity sincere spiritual practice being true to ourselves second is earnestness earnestness to know the truth that means sincerity and longing so this spiritual aspiration some people are born with but we can also cultivate this aspiration as we saw when we study the scriptures it makes us reflect that god alone is true that the world is illusory it makes us reflect on ourselves incidentally study of scriptures is called swadhyaya in sanskrit swadhyaya also means self study swa adhyayana studying myself introspection we have so much knowledge about others we hardly have any about ourselves a spiritual seeker cannot afford to be in this helpless predicament so swadhyaya involves self study being conscious of my strength being conscious of my limitation being conscious of weak links in my character so that i can strengthen them so that is swadhyaya so aspiration we can cultivate this aspiration by our spiritual practice by our reflection by our introspection everything happens at the right time shri ramakrishna says the mother bird does not hatch the hatch the egg until the right time comes and <clears throat> we also saw that earlier example that shri ramakrishna gave the child wanted the mother to wake it up when it was time when it got the nature's call the mother said that the, that call itself will wake you up so when the right time comes spiritual aspiration awakens in us so what does a spiritual seeker do piously patiently wait for the right time to dawn no he makes the right time himself he considers that now is the time and he tries to grow in spiritual awareness he tries to cultivate aspiration the next essential is regularity in prayer and our spiritual practice 
This repeated practice is required for a spiritual seeker. Holy Mother Sri Sharada Devi says, one should sit regularly in the morning and evening in meditation. One should be regular with one's spiritual practice. Unless we sit regularly, if we don't get to watch the mind, unless we sit regularly for meditation, how do we know that what we are doing is right or wrong? When we sit in meditation, we try to observe the mind. And we, get, we try to do it when we do our work also. To get an idea what we are doing is right, what we are doing is wrong, needs some kind of a detachment from our own mind, from our own body. So Holy Mother gives this important teaching. Unless you sit regularly, how will you know that what you are doing is right or wrong? So regular practice. And along with that, detachment. Spiritual life comes consists in practice and detachment, the two disciplines that Sri Krishna gave to Arjuna to control his mind. Detachment from anything that does not help me with my practice. Swami Vivekananda says, we need to re resolutely give up things that weaken us. He says, anything that weakens you physically, mentally, morally and spiritually, reject as poison. <clears throat> this rejection has to go along with our practice if you are serious about spiritual life. The next is, we need to cultivate a, a divine self-image. That we are the body, that we are the mind. We are, we are aware, of it all, aware of it all the time. That's a default condition. But I am an entity different from the body, different from the mind. I am a child of God. I am the spirit. I am a spark of the divine fire, which is God. We need, to, we need to repeatedly tell ourselves this. We need to repeatedly tell ourselves we are the spirit. <coughs> when Swami Vivekananda preached here in 1893 to 1896, <coughs> he was never tired of emphasizing this teaching. Repeatedly tell yourself you are the, you are the spirit. What makes you weep, my friend, in you is all power. Manifest that power. And this whole world will be at your feet. So someone who heard this, these teachings of Swamiji again and again asked him, <coughs> Swamiji, does this not amount to some kind of self-hypnotism? <coughs> Telling yourself, I am, the, I, I am the spirit, I am the spirit, I am the Atman. <coughs> Swami Vivekananda gave a beautiful answer. He said, we are already hypnotized into believing that we are the body. What we are trying to do is dehypnotization. That's the original sin, if you will, to think that we are the body. Swami Vivekananda says this body is a simple superstition. That we think we are the body, that is the original self hypnotism. When we say, I am the spirit, we try to dehypnotize ourselves. So, we cultivate this divine self-image. I'm a man, I'm a woman. This is a very gross body-based difference. A spiritual seeker seeks the spirit. He tries not to dwell on the body, but on the spirit in which there is no distinction of gender. And 
we need to have a very clear idea of god our relationship with him of course this is a subject by itself we are not going to elaborate on this but it's enough for us to remember this my idea of god undergoes change as i undergo change within myself as my idea of myself undergoes change my idea of god also undergoes change let's briefly see what sri ramakrishna said sri ramakrishna quoted hanuman sri rama's devotee who had had the ultimate spiritual experience in order to proclaim his glory to an assembly sri rama asked hanuman how how do you look upon me <coughs> hanuman said when i look upon myself as the body i look upon you as the master myself as the servant when i look upon myself as the individual soul as a spark of the divine fire i look upon you as the whole and myself as a part when i know that i am the atman i know that i am you you are me so in in the same spiritual seeker different attitudes of god are possible based on his attitude toward himself when hanuman looked upon himself as body he looked upon god as the master himself as the servant both of them different from each other when he looked upon himself as the spark of the divine fire god was whole and he was his part inseparable from him when he knew that knew that he was the spirit he knew that he and god were one so <clears throat> we look upon god as someone very near to us and we look upon ourselves as part of him so as spiritual seekers this we remember that our idea of the world our idea about others our idea of god keeps on evolving as our idea about ourselves keeps on evolving i conclude with one precious teaching from sri ramakrishna we saw all these ethical disciplines yama niyama and other uh, essentials for spiritual life but he says <coughs> when we have aspiration for the divine when we have longing for god that takes care of all these things he says it takes care of all these things it takes care of all negative things shri ramakrishna says as the tiger devours other animals so does the tiger of zeal for the lord eat up lust anger and the other passions once the zeal grows in the heart lust and other passions disappear so though we had a detailed discussion let's remember this the more we grow in devotion to god the more undesirable things leave us the more detached are we from all those undesirable things the root for all of which is the mind so the more we grow in devotion to god the more detached we are from the mind and that is that is the essential the more aspiration we have for the spirit the more devotion we have for god the more longing we can cultivate for god we will be we will be practicing the most essential thing for spiritual life so to recapitulate the point that we discussed today spiritual life consists in looking upon the spirit as fundamental and matter as an appearance a spiritual seeker tries to hold on to this attitude whatever be his or her condition we have to hold this ideal before us all the time and we saw that spiritual life is possible only when we are we are firmly grounded in moral life 
and to be established in moral life, we saw two sets of ethical disciplines from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, Yama and Niyama. And to these disciplines, we saw some more essentials, aspiration for the divine and regularity in our prayer and spiritual practice. And we finally saw that aspiration for the divine, that one thing Sri Ramakrishna taught, will take care of everything else. He says, as the tiger devours other animals, so does the tiger of zeal for the Lord eat up lust, anger and the other passions. Thank you.